So we have been looking at this series over the last few weeks of kingdom culture. We're looking at how uh, Jesus is the king. He's the king of the kingdom of God. And as he comes to earth, uh, he's bringing heaven to earth. That's why he asked us to pray as it is, uh, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. And so, so we believe because Jesus is the king and he is bringing the culture of heaven to the culture of earth, it changes things. And so we have to be aware of kind of the difference between the culture of heaven and the culture that we're in. And that oftentimes if we'll pay attention to that, what will happen is we'll recognize that there's a clash. That these things do not belong. And again, I'm not necessarily talking about just a kind of uh, the culture kind of big picture in the U.S. I'm talking about everything from from human culture all the way down to the culture of your heart. There is going to be a clash of culture when the king comes. And so we've been looking at this over the last few weeks. Uh, And what we've been saying consistently is that the kingdom culture does three things. It exposes what we value. So when the king and his, his kingdom comes, it exposes the things that are in our heart. It shows where there's a clash of cultures. It overcomes evil. So it somehow overcomes evil in order to bring freedom. So the kingdom culture desires to bring freedom. And so these are just, this is just what happens when the king and the kingdom of God comes and encounters us where we are. And so today we're going to talk about an, another aspect of kingdom culture. One of the words that has been kind of a buzzword or an idea that's been like a buzz idea over the last few years and in increasing measure recently is the idea of cancel culture, Right? Like we, all, we know too well that we live in a world right now where this whole thing of cancel culture is a thing. If you want to see something funny and you know who John Christ is, go on YouTube, watch John Christ's little thing on cancel culture. It's really funny. I didn't have time to show it tonight, but it's really, really good. And what this, this idea of cancel culture refers to, it, usually when we, when we hear that word, it's referring to a public figure uh, and someone who's done something, maybe they've actually done something wrong, like, um, you know, or maybe they've just perhaps done something that's unpopular. So it could be one extreme or the other. It could be something that actually was really wrong, like abuse or some kind of actual terrible scandal, or it could just be that someone said the wrong thing in the wrong moment. And whenever that happens, usually a person is kind of ostracized or cut off. Um, People are ignored or put on mute on social media or whatever. They're like sometimes blacklisted, like that's just like the popular thing in Hollywood right now. It's like, oh, we're not going to hire that person or we're not going to see that person in a movie because they did this or that or this other thing. And, and, they're, and people are treated as though like they're undefendable and there's no answer. They can't, can't do anything. And so you all, I'm, you could sit, sit and think of a whole host of people who have been kind of, kind of put on the wrong side of cancel culture, for example. And at its best, at its best, the idea of like a cancel culture is actually born out of a desire for accountability and justice. Like if, if we just take it at face value and just take it at its best, the idea to kind of like say that person has done something wrong and there needs to be accountability is actually a good thing when there's been a moral failing, when there's been abuse or a misuse of power or something like that. That impulse is a good thing because guess what? Our God is a God of justice, right? And so, so God cares about those kind of things. However, underneath that is actually something that's not so righteous. Behind this idea that's so popular now is actually a self-righteousness, or like a moral superiority. 
that causes us to see the mistakes and failures of other people and not really see our own mistakes and failures. Something that makes us say, like, that person, whoever it is, that person is unworthy of my love and unworthy of my attention, unworthy maybe even of God's love and God's attention. That's, that's kind of at the base. If we're just being really honest, if we just peel back the curtain, right, we want to just be, we want to be honest that there is, a, there is a, a good impulse, but the reality is there's also this kind of like self-righteous, hyper-moral kind of impulse. And it's easy, it's easy for us to recognize if we step back and think about culture, things have gotten a little out of hand. If we're just being honest, like this has gotten a little crazy, you know, like it, it, it just feels like it's gotten a little bit out there if we just limit it to the public sphere. If, we, if we're just looking at the public sphere, we're like, yeah, I think, I think that's gotten a little out of control. But the truth is that negative impulse behind that cancel culture, the truth is it's actually in all of our hearts. Cancel culture is a part of our hearts. Remember I said we're going to offend everybody every week, so just, you know, you guys, strap in. You know, you know the deal by now. So, We all have a temptation to cancel people. Family members, friends, church leaders, people who vote different than us, people who make different life choices than us. We all, every single one of us, have the tendency to take the high moral ground and believe that we own it, don't we? Come on, let's be honest, Right? We all think that. We all, like Jesus said, like have a tendency to see the speck of dust in our neighbor's eye, but not see the giant wood plank, you know, coming out of our own. Wow, that was awesome. I was like, let, let there be light, Lord. So let's look at an episode in the life of Jesus in Matthew and see if we can see kind of an alternative. And I think that alternative is that the kingdom of God, it brings a redemptive culture instead of cancel culture. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 19, 9 through 13. It'll be up on your screen, or you can look at it in your Bible. So here's Jesus. Jesus went from there. So he's traveling on his way, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I love this next line. Jesus is telling the people who are the experts in the law. This is his next phrase. But go and learn what this means, as though they don't know. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is actually a pretty straightforward story. Like, there is no, like, hidden meaning here in Jesus' words. It means, like, what it means. Jesus is walking along, and he meets this person named Matthew, or in some places in the Bible, called Levi, and he's a tax collector. He is a, he's a, probably of Jewish descent, and he's working, though, for the Roman Empire. I know all of you right now who have watched The Chosen, you have that picture of Matthew. That's okay. We have no idea if he was actually like that, but it's a pretty cool picture of what, what Matthew might have been like. But he was a, of Jewish-born descent, uh, but he would be working for the Romans, and he would be taking money from his, his, his countrymen, 
and giving it to the Roman Empire. And the very popular practice, the thing that everyone hated, was that when they would do this, they would actually take a little bit extra for themselves. They would line their own pockets or they would extort people. And so they were often very wealthy. And so the thing was, they were hated by everybody. So the the Jewish people hated them because they were taking money from them. And the Romans hated them because they kind of saw them as like, you're stealing money from your own people. But the Romans were like, we don't care about that as long as you give us what we do, what we want. Well, we'll turn a blind eye to it. And so they were hated by everyone before betraying their country. But Jesus walks by this tax collector and he sees something different. Whatever his issues were, whatever Matthew's issues were, it didn't keep Jesus from the invitation that he offers to Matthew to come and follow him. And then Jesus doesn't just invite Matthew to come and follow him. He actually takes it a step further. He doesn't just ask him, hey, come and follow me. He goes to Matthew's house and shares a meal. And this sharing of a meal like this with this person was a huge no-no in the, in the culture still to this day. When you extend an invitation to your, uh, to, for people to come into your home, it's almost a sense of acceptance of, of who they are. It's a, it's a fellowship that wasn't allowed to do, so you didn't invite people or you didn't go to the home of a sinner. And, and, and so it's one thing to call Matthew out and say, hey, come and follow me and expect that Matthew is going to have a life change. It's another thing to step immediately into Matthew's life and immediately into the mess, and that is exactly what Jesus does. And to make matters more complicated in the story, Jesus doesn't just hang out with Matthew. He goes to Matthew's house, this outcast, and Matthew is hanging out with the dregs of society. Because Matthew probably didn't have any friends, so who are the people he's going to hang out with? It's going to be other tax collectors and sinful people who no one wants to be around. And so what happens? Those people are invited over to Matthew's house, and the language in the text is pretty clear that they're actually having a pretty festive party. Jesus is doing a, a reclining at the table. It's, a, it's kind, of, kind of buried there in the language, but, but this is actually a pretty big, like, festive party, and it's a very public thing. So we think of, like, you know, this is, like, happening around a dinner table. It more than likely was happening outside, and there are people singing and talking and drinking wine and doing all this other kind of stuff, and you can imagine the Pharisees walking by going, what the heck is going on over there? And then they go and they hear, oh, Jesus is in town. And they go and they expect Jesus to be there with other people. And then all of a sudden, all the people that they hate are there in this house with Jesus. Jesus wasn't hiding his intentions from anybody about what he was doing here. And then enters the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're like the original cancel culture people. Like, that's, that's like who they were. They were concerned that out, of a, out of a genuine desire. Guys, sometimes we paint the Pharisees as like being awful people. Really, the truth of the matter was they had a genuine desire to see the Messiah come. And they believed that the way that the Messiah would come is when the people were pure. And so they had a high value for purity and obeying the law and morals and these kinds of things because they really wanted their Messiah to come and rescue them and redeem them. And so they had a really high value for that. But what that meant is they also had a very low value for the very people that Jesus valued. The unclean, the immoral, the people who broke the law, these are the people that the Pharisees didn't want to have anything to do with. And so they questioned Jesus, like, how can you do this? How can you be at the home of tax collectors and sinners? Because the reality was they didn't understand the culture of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus challenges them, says, hey, 
Why don't you go and read the scriptures and see what it says? It's almost like he's saying, this should have led you to a different conclusion. What you should be doing is bringing more wine to this party, not whining at this party. I just thought of that right now. That's good. That's good. That's... Yeah, here you go. What, what they didn't understand is that the kingdom of God was a redemptive culture. And so Jesus says, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Go and learn what this means. And this is important, guys. I, I want us to see this. It's not that Jesus ignores their sin. He doesn't ignore their sin. It's not as if he sees their mistakes and then just doesn't care. He actually refers to, the, to these people as people who are sick. People who are needing mercy and unrighteous. Like, so, like, this isn't like Jesus not taking sin seriously. Actually, Jesus takes sin deadly serious. It's Jesus is the one who says, look, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. This is Jesus. Yowza. This is not Buddy Christ, you know? Like, the, our picture of Jesus that we have in our mind, like, this is, this is like Jesus taking sin very, very seriously. Now, we know that Jesus was speaking in hyperbole, but the point was to get people to realize how sin is very serious. It's not as if the, the sin didn't matter to Jesus. You know, we actually, the sin, our sin, Jesus makes very clear that we're in need of forgiveness, and it's actually the thing that drives him to the cross. He gives his own life for our life. So it's not that the sin doesn't matter. It's just not a barrier to Jesus extending an invitation to come and be with him. It's not a barrier to him offering mercy to the people. It's not a barrier to Jesus offering his friendship and his fellowship with people. And this is where we really see the clash of cultures. You see, Jesus sees in Matthew not a lost cause, but an unfinished story. You see, because redemptive culture, the redemptive culture of the kingdom, sees no one, no one, not one person, not one person as a lost cause, but as an unfinished story. So he walks by Matthew, and he sees this thing in Matthew, and he knows, he knows, he knows what Matthew is. He knows what Matthew knows that he is. And he knows what everybody else sees around him, but he walks by Matthew and says, I see something different in here. I see an unfinished story. Instead, what happens, instead of canceling him, the only truly righteous one looks at this person and his unrighteousness the same way he does with you and I, and says, I can work with that. I can redeem that. I can heal that. You see, this is the clash of cultures, the redemptive culture versus the canceled culture coming at odds with one another. And what happens is it exposes that kind of cancel culture. That's when all of us, and that was back then and is here now. Because again, there's a little bit of that cancel culture in all of our hearts. Whether we're dismissing people as being too far gone from being redeemed or whether we're cutting people out of our lives for some reason, we are all, every single one of us, guilty of canceling people in some way. You guys, even as I was preparing this, I just felt really convicted from the Lord this week about the people who I unconsciously, it's not like I set out to do it, but I've just completely dismissed that person. Because it's in my heart too. I'm not preaching at you. Like, this is for us. 
as a family of God. Like, look, the, the truth is, we want to be a people who rally around King Jesus and who are shaped and molded by who he is. And there's no experts in this. We're all learning. We're all disciples. We're all guilty of it to some degree, not wanting to associate with someone for some reason. And so what Jesus does is he puts his reputation on the line and associates with the lowest of the low. And he does this over and over again. Matthew's one episode, literally when I was like, Lord, where do you want me to go with this? I could think of episode after episode after episode where we see Jesus doing the same exact thing. His actions, his repeated actions, reveal his values. And so we have to ask ourselves, would we do the same? Or would we have walked right past Matthew? He's a traitor to our country. He's a sinner. I can't be associated with that. He doesn't vote the way I vote. He doesn't think the way I think. He hangs out with those other people that I don't like too, right? Would we treat Matthew the same? Would we be willing to be around the friend of ours, the family of ours, who we know watches way too much cable news, right? I don't know about you, but there are people in my life that I avoid. How about you? I'm like, this person is going to tell me all their theories about all the things, and I just don't care. <laughs> Cancel culture in my heart. I'm just, I'm just being honest, guys. You're like, you're not our pastor. Who are you? Would, are we avoiding the alcoholic in our lives? the addict in our lives, the over-opinionated in our lives, the messy person in our lives. You know what I'm saying? Like, are, are we avoiding those people? That's just a little bit of that cancel culture. This might not seem evil. Remember that the kingdom of God exposes their values and it overcomes or casts out evil. It might not seem like evil to overcome, but as long as we see ourselves, guys, this is super important. As long as we see ourselves as worthy of God's love and forgiveness— or the people who are like us and think like us as more, somehow more worthy of God's love and forgiveness, and we think that other people aren't, as long as we think that way, we underestimate our own need for God's grace. We underestimate our own need, and we're going to underestimate the redemptive possibilities in us and in other people. Look, it, the kingdom of God does not work when people think that they have it all together. We're supposed to come into the kingdom of God like little children who are saying, I don't know what to do, Jesus. It's broken. You take it. Like that's the way we're all of us. Every single one of us are meant to enter into the kingdom of God with the spirit of humility. It doesn't mean that we all have to think we're terrible messes. It's great if you have your life together. If you pay your bills on time and you mow your lawn good or whatever it is that you like think, you know, all the things that we think like, oh yeah, I got it together. That's awesome. But it doesn't mean you don't need Jesus. Because somewhere deep inside is the brokenness that we all have. And if we can't see that in ourselves, we're going to judge other people. And then we're also going to cut ourselves off from God doing what he wants to do in our hearts and making us all that he thinks that we can be. I promise you, God thinks more highly of you than you do. I promise you. I promise you. Oh, man. I promise you. You are a cherished son or daughter in the heart of the Father. And he knew everything about you before you ever stepped foot or breathed your first breath, breath on this planet. There is no way you can outdream how good you can be. There's no way you can outdream about the things that he has for you. The only limit to that is not understanding how much grace and mercy we need to actually step into that. So the point here is not to put anybody down and say, oh, look how terrible we are. 
The point is to say, it doesn't matter. The king of kings walks by and says, I'll take that one. He'll be a part of my inner circle. How about that? To the defiance of everyone else who says, oh, I don't think so. Jesus, are you sure? See, self-righteousness is bad because we don't see what God is doing in our own story. And then we won't be able to see what God can do in other people's story. We won't see that. And so what the redemptive culture of heaven wants to do is expose that and say, yeah, this is a place where anybody can have a part in the family of God because guess what? Jesus has overcome the ultimate evil on the cross that makes a way for us all to be a part of the family of God. The blood covers a multitude of sins. And so every single one of us can stand before God completely innocent. And so it levels the playing field with all of us, not one more righteous than another. And so what that means is that we all have a chance to become home. And, and once that happens, once we recognize that, then we all have a chance to walk in freedom. And what the redemptive culture of heaven wants to do is bring freedom, just like every aspect of the kingdom of God. He wants us to walk in freedom. He wants us to be free from a false ideal of perfection. He wants you to be free from a false ideal of perfection. Because here's the problem. You can do really good for a while. Let's just be honest. Like there are times in your life where you're like, yeah, I'm doing really good with that sin and I haven't been doing that anymore and that's really good. But then what happens the moment that you fail? I'm a terrible person. God hates me. His favor's left me. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe this is me, my own internal monologue. But when we believe that we have to maintain this sense of perfection, we're setting ourselves up for failure because you're not perfect. And it allows us instead, to, instead of doing that, to accept God's grace and forgiveness. Elsewhere, Jesus talks about how when we understand the great debt that we have been forgiven then we will understand what he's actually done for us. And actually, we will understand what he's doing in other people. We'll be freely able to give away forgiveness and freely able to give away mercy, but only if we really understand the debt that we've been forgiven to. Like Romans 3.23 says, like all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of the glory of God. This as an aside, the Lord's taken me on a journey understanding the depth of that scripture even more. Because we often focus on the first half and how we've all sinned, which is true. But the emphasis in that is not just that we've all sinned, but all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The idea is that each one of us, every single one of us, we're image bearers of God. He has made us to reflect his glory. So it's not just that we're supposed to avoid sin, it's that our lives should look so much like him that when people see our lives, they glorify God. And what it says is every person has fallen short of that. So while God may have taken care of the sin issue, there is still more glory for us to walk in. That's blowing my mind lately. It's like, all right, Lord, then I want it all. I want my life to be a reflection of your glory. I don't want to fall short of that anymore. I want all of that. I think that's what he wants for us because in that is freedom. Because in that, there's not just freedom for us, there's freedom for other people. What God wants for us is to extend the same grace to others is that we have been extended. To see people not as finished products, but as unwritten stories or unfinished stories. That's what he wants. He wants us to see other people the way he sees them. And when we, when, we, when we think that way, we look at people that way, 
then we get to play a part in their redemptive story. We get to join and still get the thing that God's doing in this person's life. There is nothing better. That, guys, I'm just telling you, there's nothing, nothing better than being a part of someone's story and seeing God change it and redeem it. It's just, it's just the absolute best. Imagine if Jesus had walked by Matthew and said, mm, yeah, not you. Not you. If that's the case, then Matthew's story remains unchanged. And so does a whole host of people that come over to his house for the party. And then our lives are changed because guess what? We have, we're missing a book from our New Testament. It starts with Mark, not Matthew. Instead, what Jesus walks by and sees a tax collector, and he invites him into his inner circle and says, I think this person can be a part of my family. And I think it would be a good idea to also invite a zealot into this family too. There's a person who's a disciple who's named Simon the Zealot. A zealot is essentially like the radical version of like a patriot. Like this person was literally like, we're going to take out anyone and everyone that stands against our country. And, and so they would kill anybody who they thought was conspiring with the Romans as long as they could get away with it. They were religiously zealous. And so you have this person who is like, I'm going to kill any conspirators with Rome, right? Think of modern day militia, right? We're going to invite that guy with Matthew over here who's taking money from his countrymen. Come on, who does this, right? This is like, this is a really bad idea. I've taken all kinds of leadership classes about how to build the team. This is not in those classes. Like this is just not there. Do you realize the radical redemptive nature of the kingdom of God? Like it is, guys, it blows your mind. There is no explanation other than it's, the, it's a miracle. Simon the zealot sitting at the same table as Matthew the tax collector makes no sense. It just doesn't. And it's not like it's just those two. It continues to play out. As the movement of Jesus grows, we have Paul, the former Pharisee, who maybe was one of these people visiting Matthew's house going, what is this guy doing? He can't do this. Who's later... Later, sitting down at the table with Gentiles who are eating pork, sacrificed to idols. Do you, I mean, I, I know that we don't, we don't have time to go into why that's so mind-blowing, but it is absolutely mind-blowing. What in the world are we doing in the church today when we can't sit down with people who vote differently than us? What are we doing? This is not God's heart for his people. Like, do you, do you, we're missing the element of the church being these, this hodgepodge group of people who are coming together, who are so different, because when that happens, actually the book of Ephesians, if you study it, it says that is a witness to the world of the greatness of the glory of God. That, that these people, God is fitting something together that no man can take credit for. That's awesome. And no amount of sitting down and like having reconciliation talks and stuff like that can do it. It's Jesus the reconciler. It's Jesus the one who wins hearts and minds. It's Jesus who transforms our hearts. He said, you know what? I'll sit down with this person. Think about if Paul was a part of cancel culture. Guess what? He now like, doesn't get to pastor all the churches and plant all the churches he does. Do you see what I'm saying? We take a, a, a person who was murder, murdering Christians, and now all of a sudden he's at the very center of Christianity. You and I are sitting here in this room because, oh, this guy's, oh man, because the group of early followers of Jesus probably sat down and said, what do we do with this guy, Paul? He was literally coming here to kill us. 
He's been putting Christians on trial and locking them up. What are we going to do with this guy? I'm imagining this conversation happening with the disciples where they're going, well, WWJD. <laughs> they looked at their bracelets. No, they didn't have bracelets, but, but they were probably like, well, what, what would Jesus do? And they were like, hey, Matthew, remember? Remember? Hey, Simon, you remember? Do you see what I mean? I'm getting chill bumps thinking about it, man. It's, it's Jesus who is unlike anything you've ever known. And the King of kings and Lord of lords and the kingdom of God, which is unlike anything you could ever think. We are thinking way too small. God looks at every problem and every person as a possibility and an opportunity, not as a problem. See, in Jesus and his community, in this redemptive community, all things are possible. Remember, we talked about that last week. We trust him with everything and all things are possible. That's what a faith community looks like. And that's true about people too. It's nothing short of a miracle. Now, there are a couple ways that we can think about this and we can apply this. First of all, I think that we should actually probably just do a little bit of like a heart and gut check and, and just ask ourselves, have we been allowing ourselves to be influenced by the world in this kind of stuff? Have we subtly, or maybe not so subtly, been pulled into the cancel culture? We often associate the cancel culture with one side politically, but it's, but it's not. We all do it. So have we just been subtly just pulled into that? Have we forgotten who our God is? Have we forgotten what the church is meant to be? One body, many parts. Have we forgotten that? Have we, have we forgotten how God looks down on humanity and, and says, I gave my life for that person. How dare you talk about that person in that way? Whether or not their Twitter is like this or what, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know, guys, I'm being a little harsh here, but I think it's so important because this creeps into our mentality. It's not necessarily that we're doing anything about it. We're not going out and trying to stone people, but it affects our thinking. When it affects our thinking on a big scale, it's going to affect your thinking on a small scale. So that person that it's easy to ostracize on TV, it's now interesting to treat the person that lives next to you that way. You see what I mean? And then all of a sudden it gets into to your heart. And so we just have to be aware, guys, we're not supposed to live as though we're of the world. We're not. Like, we're supposed to live as citizens of a different kind of kingdom that trumps everything, every other kingdom. So have we allowed that to seep into our heart? Just, like, just at, a, at a level, like, is that, is that a thing? If so, guys, by the way, we don't do shame here. We do, we do confession, we do repentance and say, Jesus, yeah, it's there. Help me. I'm sorry. Like, that's it. Like, we don't have to beat anything up. Like, we don't have to, oh, I'm so terrible. No, Jesus died for you too. Like, so it's okay. Secondly, so that's a big picture. Secondly, as we like zoom in in our hearts. Mark, you can come on up. I'll just have you play for just a minute. Are there people, specific people in our lives? So, so think, forget about the big picture. Are there specific people in our lives? that we've written off, that we've canceled in some way. Maybe we think that they're just not redeemable. I, I just can't see. Can't see how God is going to save this. Maybe they've hurt you. And you feel really wounded. And like, it feels very hard like to think about being in relationship with that person. 
And we don't have time right now to go into the process of forgiveness and reconciliation and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want you to walk away from here feeling like you've got to go out and you've got to figure out today how to go and forgive a person who's like really wounded you and you're really hurt. I'm just saying like maybe just begin to have a conversation with Jesus about what forgiveness looks like, about what reconciliation might look like. And if you're not sure, then talk to a counselor. We've got like 10 good ones here at our church. You can come and talk, talk to me. I'd love to talk with you. I'd encourage you to read Matthew chapter 18. This is just a reminder that is an absolute high value for us as a church. Matthew at chapter 18, it, Jesus lays out the process of reconciliation when, when we have something, an offense against someone. And that starts with going and talking directly to the person with whom we have an offense rather than going to someone else. There's a very clear biblical pathway for how we deal with those kinds of issues. If you're not sure how to step into that, I mean, we'd love to help you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to come alongside you in that journey. So maybe there's something in your heart. Again, no shame here. Like, guess what? The same compassion that we're saying we should have for other people, Jesus has even more so for you. Okay? So don't do shame. If you do shame, it will keep you from being obedient. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree? What do they do? Hide. They hide. They're in fear of their shame. That shame will keep you from intimacy with other people, just like it keeps you from intimacy with God. God doesn't want any person in our church to ever feel alone. It's not his heart. It's not his design for you. He's designed you to live in community. He's, de he's designed you to have really good friendships that encourage you and lift you up and challenge you, to have people who are up in your business, like, and, and, and people to champion you when you're down. Like, that's how God has designed you. And offense and those kind of things, we're going to deal with this in a couple weeks. It's one of those things that will keep us from that. So let's just plant the seed now for what we think that God will want to do in the future. Third, are you living according to that redemptive culture of the kingdom of God? Are you around people who look different than you, think different than you? Are you around people whose situations are messy? who lives are maybe not neat and tidy? Are you around people who are broken or only around people whose lives kind of look like they're all put together? If so, then maybe we should just take a step back and think about who we're spending our time with. Somebody in the Vineyard Movement, I'm not sure if it was John Wimber who said, if you take a walk with Jesus, and you don't bump into the poor every once in a while, you're not walking with Jesus. And I would just say the same thing applies for all the messy situations that are out there. I'm not talking about just poverty, but, but if you're walking with Jesus and you're not walking and bumping in to the lives of people whose lives are a little bit messy every once in a while, it might be time to just say, am I really listening to the voice of God? Am I really walking with Jesus? And again, I say that not from any place of shame, but an opportunity to expand our horizons of who God might want to welcome into his family, of who God might want to set free from whatever addictions they have, 
to raise them up out of poverty, to put them in family when they had no family, to set them free from oppression and and all kinds of things. Like, Like maybe God is inviting you into the stories of other people, but we've got to open our eyes to see them as kind of unfinished stories and see ourselves as having a part. Not their Savior. Jesus is the Savior. But he uses us, our hands and our feet. He uses our our tangible ways of interacting with one another. So maybe you're not overtly canceling anybody. Maybe that's not a part of who you are. But are you stepping into the story of God in other people's lives? So here's what I want to do. I want to pick, pick up your card that you got when you came in. On the back of that card, there's basically two questions. One is, just what are you going to take away from, from today's gathering? So maybe it's something from the worship. Maybe it's something from the message. But what are you going to take away? Because we don't want to come here and, and, and just sit and listen and just be here. We actually want to hear the word of the Lord and put it into practice in our lives. So what are you going to take away? Maybe you just feel encouraged. Maybe you feel really challenged. Maybe there's a specific person that you need to go and have a conversation with. Maybe you're like, gosh, yeah, I need to be around some people and I don't know how to start. We've, we would love for you to come and hang out with us at Big Table, our ministry that serves, serves people throughout the week. We just invite you to come and do that. Like there, there are lots of different ways, but what's your takeaway today? And is there, the second question, is there anyone that you need to talk to about this? Or is there anything like a follow-up step that you need to do? Is there, is there a conversation that you need to have with someone? So not just take away, who do you need to share this with? Because transformation happens best in community, not in private. So who do you need to go and talk to about this? I'm going to pray over you while you just have a second to fill, finish that. Lord, I pray for my friends here today. God, ask that they're, they're, they're taking a minute just to reflect on what you've said and done. I pray, Lord, that you would lift our hearts and minds, Lord, to see people the way that you see them, see the world the way that we see it, or the way that you see it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to leave here with conviction in our hearts, Lord, uh, to be around the people who you love. Lord, to press into a redemptive culture, Lord, and to not allow ourselves to participate in the ways of the world. Would you keep us your people who are set apart, called apart from the world for the salvation of the world? Would you help us to be those people today? And would you send us out by your spirit to do what you've called us to do and be who you've called us to be? I ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. If you need prayer for anything, there'll be some people. We'll stick around here and pray for you. If this sparked something in you, you feel like, gosh, I'm really feeling like conviction today. Or you're like, hey, I I need some clarity about where to go with this. We'd love to talk, talk with you. Otherwise, we hope you have an amazing week. Be praying for our ladies as they go on their retreat this weekend. Have fun, ladies. I hope you have an awesome time. Uh, We'll uh, we'll be praying for you and just expecting you you guys to just to connect with one another and connect with God's heart. And then we'll see all the rest of you back here on Sunday as we welcome Daniel and Kat into our church family. Blessings, guys. We'll see you soon.